frankly, it doesn't really have anything the paramedics don't have. They have the same electricity and the same drugs that the, the paramedics generally have. Do they have some other things? Yes, but they don't have this. Uh, and and really, you know, if a patient rolls in the door and is quickly pronounced, whereas they really had a shot at life at another ED a mile away, it's bananas. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO. It is November 2023. This is Zach Shiner. And we are one week, less than one week away from reanimate. Next week, we are going to have a whole bunch of people out here. Sold out two conferences. First day is intensive for our San Diego contingency and all the cool stuff we're doing in San Diego. Actually, on the podcast today, I'm going to have Saul Levine with us, who is you know, one of the guys that have made this happen. So you're going to hear a lot about what's going on in San Diego. But our training next week for Reanimate is going to be fabulous. Can't wait. We've got uh, the full course on Wednesday, Thursday. We've got Jason Bartos, John Marinero. We've got Katrina Gustin. We've got Patty Joyce and Natalie Applebaum from the Alfred. We've got Vadim Gudzenko, who was here last, you know, on the podcast last month. We've got a rock star crew of the usual course, Scott Weingart, Joe Belezzo, Chris Ho. Uh, we are going to be doing this in San Diego, and it's going to be fantastic. Different note, though, these last two months have been a whirlwind for me, a great whirlwind. Uh, I was out in Prague. I was in Poland. I was up at Elso in Seattle. Saw many of you in those places, and I had to tell you something. I learned a lot. Jan's course out at the ECPR school in Prague was fantastic. It was just fantastic. And so I wanted to do today a little bit more before I get to saw, I want to do a little laundry list with you. I want to tell you about some of the stuff that has been on my mind, some of the stuff where, you know, I think maybe I've been doing things wrong. Maybe I should be doing things better. Okay, so let's dive into it. First thing, more on a clinical basis, uh, putting the wire in, how do you cannulate? Charles Bruin, Jan and Dimitri and I were at dinner, and Charles was like, why do you anchor your hand on the patient? It's bouncing up and down. Yeah, don't do that. And, I, and as I thought about it, I was like, oh, yeah, in Dimitri's video, it's true. He's not putting his hand on the, on the patient. And so Charles just flat said, hey, you got your ultrasound, your left hand, your right hand, put the needle in, put your wire through it, and then let go. And he even kind of commented on how the wire, the needle is going to fall down, give you a little bit of a better angle once you let it go. So I think I'm going to change my practice. I think my new practice is going to be left hand ultrasound, right hand needle, no syringe on the back of the needle. I'm going to go floppy wire. This is an interesting thing as well that I learned that, you know, we've always taught the three stages where you've got a second stage where there's a placeholder line. But the thinking has always been, well, if you're going to go straight on ECMO, maybe you just put the Amplatz wire right through the needle. Now, I would say polling programs over in Europe that the majority of places do not do that. They feel that the risk is too high. And so placement of some small cannula, maybe like even a five French floppy into the vein and artery with a soft wire before you introduce the Amplatz is potentially ideal. All right, so putting it all together, needle in right hand, ultrasound in, in left hand, put it into the skin, let go of the needle, take the wire, insert it into the needle after you've re-grabbed it with your left hand. You then place a, this is with a floppy wire, you then place a five French catheter in, 
over that after you've inserted it, you then insert the Amplatz wire and you're done. All right, so how about femoral artery transduction? This is another interesting thing. We've always taught right radial transduction, but why screw up the right radial art line? The cardiologists want it for the cath, so why are we putting it there? You can transduce it just fine in the right femoral, and if you need your ABGs, you can get them without actually inserting a line. There might be some significant advantages to transduction from the femoral artery rather than the right radial artery. All right, what about your venous cannula? Venous cannula placement at reanimate, we usually teach right, uh, right atrium, the RA junction to the IVC. Well, you got some downsides of that. We've kind of been that way because we thought it was safer because of the concern for perforating the right atrium. But if you've got some way to confirm that your wire is in the SVC, placement of the cannula higher has its advantages. One of it is about chatter. We've always thought, you know, if you're not getting as much flow, you're not getting as much capture of that return blood, then you're going to have lower flows and potentially increased risk of chatter. But there's a second reason, and that's about north-south syndrome. If your deoxygenated blood that is coming off of your mixing point is, if that is sending deoxygenated blood up into your brain, then that's coming down through your SVC and that's the blood that's missed. So if you can put your cannula up higher into your RA and even into your SVC, then you have, can have greater capture of that blood and less chance of north-south syndrome. All right, so some pretty cool clinical pearls. As far as what's going on in the world, there is so much cool stuff. I got to hang out with Dennis Ray's Miranda from Netherlands. Wow. They are, their program is so exciting. I cannot wait till we actually get good data so that I can share all that they're doing. But right now, Dennis is going out on a helicopter. He's getting fantastic response times. He's being able to get patients on. And he's doing this through pre-hospital ECMO, covering 100% of the Netherlands. Can't wait to hear more about that. Brian Burns out in Sydney, the uh, Melbourne situation where they're all doing pre-hospital ECMO. Both of those cities are, are really progressive in this nature. And this whole idea of pre-hospital ECMO, man, if it's done well, this could be the way of the future. Another thing I loved hearing Dimitri, Dimitri talks about LV unloading and how he's He's not the biggest fan of Impella, let's just say that. But we do want to know, remember, that, that uh, thrombus of the left, eight, of the left ventricle is, is not good. And pulmonary edema is also not good. And so anything that we can do to keep the heart ejecting is good, whether that's with inotropes. Certainly we want to keep in mind doing a quick echo on the patient, especially right after you start introduction of the pump, to make sure that you are getting ejection of that left ventricle. All right. So those are some cool things. I also got to go out to, to Poland and visit Marek Dabrowski, show all that they've been doing. They trained, they did 33 conferences, one a month. They trained over 300 providers in Poland so that the, the education of eCPR throughout Poland is just next level. Such cool stuff going on out there in Europe. All right, so with that, let's get to Saul. Well, Saul, welcome to ED ECMO. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, man, uh, so much is going on in San Diego. Tell us about what you've done. Well, I don't want to take credit for things that are really a, a you know a broad base of of enthusiasm that have gotten us to this point. And 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 you know, frankly, being a partner with you at Sharp ED has 
we all have fed off your infectious enthusiasm for this topic. My man, my original involvement with this concept came right in the very beginning for this for Sharp. I was working the day that our first ED ECMO patient went on. And I'm embarrassed to say I went into the room advising that you discontinue efforts because I didn't, I thought it was futile and it was consuming a lot of resources in the ED and it was a busy day. And it didn't really dawn on me what had happened until that patient came back to our group meeting and said, going to his grandson's baseball game was the most meaningful thing to him. And it was really at that point that I, I kind of realized there's something here. I have been in the role of being the EMS liaison for our hospital with the county in San Diego for many years. And at that time I was in the same role. And it was around the time of that first arrest that I started, I guess, harassing, for lack of a better word, the county to develop a system to permit hospitals that are capable of this technology to accept more cardiac arrest patients. And they really never were set up for that conceptually. And I think it was uh, such a foreign concept that it was really put by the wayside for a long period of time. And now that we have it going since July of this year in 2023, I, I feel like we're probably behind where we should be or, or could have been. But nonetheless, I think we have good reason to, to celebrate that we're at least off the ground with this program. Okay. And so uh, we've talked about this setting up different programs in different cities. We actually just had Los Angeles on for two months in a row. Tell me about what we're doing. What is the process? What are the inclusion? How, how did you come up with all these details? This has been a work of the masses. So uh, we organized a group of, you know, basically collective will of the clinicians back many years ago, six years ago. And there was a meeting between many ECMO care providers in the county, as well as the county and some EMS agencies. They were all invited to a, a big dinner that Dr. Shiner put together. And, and that also sort of stumbled out of the gates. It didn't really, nothing really ran with it. I think it was really partly my pushing and the county's realization that there's real value to directing selected cardiac arrest patients to certain centers that eventually what, what has happened is we've had uh, a meeting we call the San Diego Resuscitation Consortium, and we meet monthly. It's initially sort of all-inclusive, all EDs, all hospitals, care providers, and the county uh, who makes the EMS medical direction here. And as things evolved and it became apparent that not all of the hospitals were going to be able to perform this time-critical intervention, that the meeting narrowed down. And so eventually we've arrived at the three hospitals that are capable of performing CPR 24 hours a day. Now, as comparing to Los Angeles, it is quite similar. I, I, I like, of course, I like to try to learn things from other locations and other, other people that are ahead of us. And although I think Los Angeles has a similar uh, type of setup where it was really heavy engagement of EMS to, to drive the patients to the ECPR-capable hospitals. We have a, a similar uh, layout here where you could make a map of the, the city and essentially predict what hospital a, an eligible patient would go to. As I understand, 
one of the big differences that we have from Los Angeles is that we offer this in a more robust 24-7 mechanism by way of emergency physicians. And I don't really think, as, as best I can tell, you probably can speak to this more, uh, more clearly than I can, that there really are not other cities in the United States that are, by and large, using emergency physicians to do the cannulations. And it certainly seems to fit with not only the technologies in our wheelhouse, in other words, doing a Seldinger and inserting large cannulas, but also we're already there and we're awake at two in the morning and we're prepared. So I think the, you know, giving again, a lot of credit back to you and reanimate and the, and the, the process of training a bunch of physicians for this, I, I think is, is how we were able to provide this service as we have laid out. It is, you know, I'll, I'll go on to some of what I, I think are going to be your next questions, which is, it's a battle. We have started in July, and it was really a, a change of protocol, and it's a big change. We're asking paramedics and EMS agencies to not only get off scene quickly in these cardiac arrest patients, which historically has not been advisable, but also we're asking them to bypass hospitals that are not capable of providing this service. Uh, so it's a massive change. And I think what we're going to learn, and we have been learning already in the few months that we've had since its beginning, is it's uh, it, it takes some education for EMS and for the nurses that run the radios and for the physicians that advise the nurses. Yeah, I mean, spot on. I mean, this is it's so exciting what's happened. You know, we're different than the rest of the world. We are thinking about this a little bit different. We've got the immediately available physician able to cannulate, and we're not sure. We're not sure this is going to be better than the, you know, couple cannulators per city model. But like you said, this is robust. We have multiple people that can be involved. If any person decides to leave, we still have a program that will be just as successful. And we've done it with very little resources. I think that's one of the comments that that needs to be said as well, that we don't have these huge grants. We don't have physicians on call 24-7 that need to be on standby to go and do this. We have them, the normal operating ERs, just with increased technical skills and now able to do it. So, so far, we started in July. You alluded to this a little bit. Tell me how the program is going. Well, we have, of course, you know, midnight on July 1st happened there was a lot of excitement and and then it was sort of watching paint dry. But we have had several eCPR alerts, you know, starting from, you know, within a few days of the beginning of the program. We have had, I think, uh, about 20 alerts over the first three months, which is not a lot. And yet in October, we've had 10. So now looking forward to November, hopefully we can continue some momentum. Now, this is all alerts, understanding this is not all patients that might be eligible for the program because, again, we don't have a 100% capture rate, probably quite a bit below that. In fact, I would venture to say it's probably not even capturing a third of the patients that would be potentially eligible. And many of the alerts end up having ROSC or end up having a hard contraindication to going on a circuit. So we try to make the education for the paramedics clear that we are not going to cannulate 100% of these patients is probably about if, you know, based on what I've seen and what other places have seen is about one third of patients that are potentially eligible will go on a circuit. And, and I think having 
EMS understand that is is really vital to the success of the program because we don't want to have crestfallen caregivers that are dripping sweat, bringing in a cardiac arrest patient and and expect something that's not provided. You know, and I think it's important that you you, you pointed out that the, the cost of this program, which really you know frankly was a flip of the switch with uh, policy and procedure, and it really is something that has grown out of the community that already was providing this. In, in fact, that's one of the, you know, the selling points for this program, which is that this is something, this is not a, a great divergence from what we do. This is something we've been doing for a decade at RED. And it's foolish to take a patient that's viable with, you know, just picking refibrillating, a, a patient that's refibrillating in the field and taking him or her to a hospital that frankly, it doesn't really have anything the paramedics don't have. They have the same electricity and the same drugs that the, the paramedics generally have. Do they have some other things? Yes, but they don't have this. Uh, and and really, you know, if a patient rolls in the door and is quickly pronounced, whereas they really had a shot at life at another ED a mile away, it's bananas. I, it's really low-hanging fruit to, to flip this switch. So good. So good. Yeah. I mean, when we look at successful ECPR programs, there's a number of different inputs and one of them is capture. And we've seen capture just be a problem all over the place. And we saw it in San Diego for the first month there. But now this last month, man, it is, it is a big change and we are getting a lot of ECMO patients and those are, and we're talking about just patients in the program. Like there are other patients that are coming to us who don't fit the program, but still would fit inclusion criteria for cannulation. And so this is super exciting. And I think uh, a lot of this is efforts from you, Saul, it's from um, Mary Scarlett, from our program, from our County of just going out and talking to EMS. I've been involved with a lot of these discussions and getting the buy-in and getting this, this number up because uh, now we've already seen saves. I mean, we don't want to talk about our data yet because it's too early, but we've already had saves as a result of this program. And I just, I cannot wait to see what's happening in the next few months. Yeah, I worry, you know, that brings up something that that worries me a bit, and I'm sure worries the upstairs clinicians, which, you know, as you know, this is really much more than just pipe, pipe, pump. It, you know, that's really where the trouble starts. And so the patients that are managed by, the, you know, amazing clinicians upstairs and hospital leadership, we all, I think, worry about the same thing, which is that if we have a, a rush of patients particularly if they're not appropriate, we are at risk of crashing the system. So I think we have to be a little bit careful what we ask for. Well, I would just talk, reiterate into that is that Netherlands learned this as well, right? In their first trial, they they weren't really well trained. They had a long time to cannulation. And now Denise Miranda out there is, is crushing it. I mean, they're doing pre-hospital ECMO. They have a very tight uh, inclusion criteria, 50-year-old as their, as their upper age limit. And, you know, we, we're going to have to learn some stuff. We're going to have to see what is the patient population that San Diego can uh, accommodate. And maybe it's broader than what we're using right now. Maybe it's more narrow than what we're using right now. Uh, but to think that we're going to hit it right on the nail at the first head is probably would, would just be lucky if it was. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, I, I agree. I, I think it's it's premature to talk about our, our experiences a little bit, even though conceptually it's uh, fairly unique. And although it follows by and large what Los Angeles has done, 
I, I think there are some, uh, you know, distinct differences, but again, not getting into to too many cases. I, I think there's one case that is worth mentioning, which is really what a, a case that serves as proof of concept for our county, which is there is a patient, a young gentleman, he was in his 40s. He really had no medical problems. He started having chest discomfort. He was taken to the emergency department, diverting to a fire station because his condition worsened in the car. The patient actually had a cardiac arrest a block from the fire station. And she pulled up honking to this fire station. This is in a fairly remote part of the county. The fire and, and EMS team came out of the station, recognized that the patient was refibrillating and shocked him and called an alert to bring him as a cardiac arrest to the hospital because this was witnessed and it seemed fresh enough that they, they thought this patient was salvageable rather than trying to stay in play. The patient was, it's kind of a longer story than this, but the patient was eventually diverted to one of the ECPR capable hospitals and was amazingly saved and had an hour of CPR, had decannulations and extubation in a few days and was you know, joking around and high-fiving. And the patient would have absolutely been pronounced at the closer hospitals he bypassed. And as well, it was over 30 miles. And this is not freeway miles, as some of it was freeway miles, but it was over 30 miles that the patient transported, which really was so eye-opening for me. Uh, and, you know, I think for a lot of people involved with our, our system here, which is that, you know, San Diego, which has, has fairly defined borders, the Mexican border to the south, the ocean to the west, the military base Camp Pendleton to the north, that these borders then conceptually, at least in the, you know, given the right circumstances of arrest could be covered with just three centers. Now it's a little bit of extrapolation. In fact, looking back at the, the, the cases that might have been eligible for our service, but didn't, didn't get transported as alerts, most of those are for distance. We sort of dismiss it like, oh, that was too far. But this case really, I think, is eye-opening for for all of us about, uh, you know, what the limits are uh, in terms of distance. Um, although we do have a, a, a strict time application of 45 minutes from time of arrest to ED arrival, uh, we do ask EMS agencies to stick to that because that's what we agreed to in our, our original protocol, 45 minutes. But it still is a, at least proof of concept that, that we can go quite a bit further than we thought. Okay, Saul, amazing. I mean, amazing what, what we've done. I'll say it together. We have done, I think, something amazing. Now, you, I will give you so much credit for bringing this to the finish line, not to the finish line, to the starting line, really, so that we can even get this off the ground. And Christy and all of the EMS people in our county uh, have just been so supportive. And now we're seeing outcomes. And we're seeing capture. And is the ER program model the best model? I don't know. Uh, I just know that, that this is one model that may potentially be reproducible throughout the world. I also agree with you 100% that there's so much more to this, that this is a system thing. This is EMS providing good ALS and BLS management before a pre-hospital. It's critical care, post-pump initiation. It's all kinds of things that play into making uh, one person saved. But we saw it and we've seen it a time and time again, that even places where we thought that this was an impossibility are now possible. Yeah, I really, you know, it's hard to deny this chance of survival in the light of, look at this guy. 
you know, look him in the eye. And, and when you see him with his kids, tell me that it's appropriate to take him to a different hospital. Heavy, heavy stuff. All right. So, uh, thank you for coming on. We are going to have you back on, like, we'll just see, we'll see how this program goes. We'll see ups and downs of it. I'm sure there'll be, and we'll want updates on, on how we're doing here in San Diego, but thanks for coming on the show today. Love it. Thanks so much. Uh, anything else from your standpoint you'd like to say to the crew? I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, as, as I've gone through the, you know, sort of the, the training of doing this and, and working on, on several cases and being involved with the, the decision-making, I really, I can't emphasize enough how much of a, a team effort this is. And I really, you know, with the greatest humility, I'm, I'm happy to say I'm part of the program, but, you know, like you said, it's, you know, we are all just sort of links in the chain just like the defibrillator that shows up or the EMS agent uh, doing chest compressions or the ICU nurse three days later, it's all part of the same necessary chain and you can't have one break in the chain or things fall apart. Uh, so, you know, I really, I, I look forward to the future. It's obviously an exciting time to be in this space and you know, I look forward to more saves. It's really, this is about returning people to society and, and saving lives, as you have always pointed out.